0: Well, thanks uh, so much, Liz. It's great to be with you tonight. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Unity Church, and what a cracking passage uh, we just heard read to us. Um, I don't know how your week's been, but um, it's been a great joy to be able to come together tonight together, and we've been working our way, th- way through Matthew's uh, gospel account. Um, now, as we get to this uh, section of Matthew's um, in Matthew's gospel, uh, last week, if you were here, we were talking about the way in which. Um, Uh, There's kind of miracles on either side of the passage, and tonight we kind of dive into what Peter calls a parable that's going to help us understand something super important. Uh, So why don't we pray that as we dig into this passage, God would help us uh, unpack his word together. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, who you are, how you've made us, and your word that you've given us. Uh, We thank you that in it, it reveals to us um, more about you and more about us. And we pray that tonight you would help us to understand um, the significance of our hearts in relation to you and what it means to live wholeheartedly for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if COVID has taught us anything in the last two years, it's the importance of washing our hands, right? 2020 will go down as one of those years where yellow instructions were imprinted on our minds with the 20-second rule. Who knew you need to wash your hands for 20 seconds, right? We were all there together, united, trying to uh, tackle this invisible virus uh, and, and we kind of already knew that germs spread through uncleanliness, yeah? Uh, but it seems that not everyone knew the importance of hand washing, uh, nor how to do it properly, uh, and so therefore the need for posters throughout this country. Um, and, and so washing your, our hands was one of the ways we were trying to help eliminate the risk of transmission. Now, I realize that for some of us, uh, you know, even mentioning the C word brings up like PTSD, and we're just trying to like block that out of our mind. Uh, But it's somewhat fitting, isn't it, as we come to this section in Matthew's gospel? Because here, Matthew wants to show us the difference between tradition and law. Uh, More than that, he wants us to understand that Jesus hits at the very heart of the problem that's going on. And So tonight, don't worry, you're not going to leave here with some kind of like uh, seven-step ritual on how to wash your hands better like first-century Jewish people, nor are we going to hand out yellow COVID uh, stickers for you to like, plaster on your bathroom back in the halls. No, no, tonight as we come to this passage, we want to look beyond the presenting problem. We want to understand the heart of the problem, and we want to do that together. Now, if we're... Um, Reading along, keep your Bibles open, because if you're reading along with us, um, we're in chapter 15, and it all starts with a tradition of hand-washing, doesn't it? So pick it up with me, verse 2. The Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask, "'Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat.'" Now, you see, on the surface, it seems that they're nitpicking about some sort of uh, issue that's going on with Jesus' disciples. It's like they're kind of starting a smear campaign against Jesus, that kind of classical political power move, you know, don't attack the leader, attack the party, um, and bring it into disrepute. See, these scribes and Pharisees, they've come all the way from Jerusalem, and they've come to this rural area where Jesus has been teaching, and it's actually a really long way away. And they come to lay this complaint against his disciples, and you'd think it would be significant, but it turns out to be just about hand-washing. Now, for us to understand why these scribes and Pharisees took such offense, we we do actually need to know a little bit about the laws that were given to Israel, Um, laws that highlighted the difference between God and his people. These are laws specifically um, that seem a little bit strange to us today. Laws uh, about people with skin diseases, laws about touching sort of dead animals or dead humans, uh, laws about animals that you could or couldn't eat, these were all given to impress upon God's people the importance of cleanliness. So it wasn't so much a matter of personal hygiene, although lads, deodorant is a good thing, so keep that up. It's actually, uh, in this passage, it's about the removal of any sort of ceremonial defilement. See, if you were going to come into the temple and offer sacrifices and worship to God, you needed to be clean. And so these rules for purification were a kind of a visual aid. They were reminding them that they were spiritually and morally unclean, and they were reminding them that they didn't meet the perfect standard required to be in the presence of God. I uh, Growing up as a kid, I remember uh, my mum buying me a particular uh, outfit one day, a, a kind of nice pair of clothes, and she said to me, uh, you must make sure that you only use these for special occasions. This isn't to kind of go and play sport or run around in the mud. Uh, this, was a, this was a pair of clothes that was to be used for uh, special occasions, for example, like maybe going to church. And all my other clothes were pretty average, and, and on Sundays I got to kind of wear my best clothes, my, my good clothes. <laughs> Now, it's not that those clothes were morally better, but it but is that they said something about the importance of the occasion, right? That kind of going to church was something that you kind of uh, needed to, 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 to come in reverence and awe of who God was, what, what it is that we're actually doing. And that's kind of like what the cleanliness laws did. They kind of showed how, to set, um, how, how you're set apart from God uh, and how Israel was different to all the other nations around them. And so for the Jews, they saw the law as God's greatest gift to the human race. They regarded this as a wonderful privilege, that they'd received it, that they got to enjoy it. But here's the problem. These Pharisees, they took these rituals and they embellished them. See, there were actually no laws about washing your hands before eating. When it came to washing, the only kind of stipulations in the law were for the priest before he entered the most holy place in the temple where God's presence dwelt. This wasn't a a stipulation for all of Israel, just the priest. And yet over the years, these traditions of the elders, as they're called, traditions of the elders, that all developed into unwritten rules that the Jewish people were taught to live by. They weren't part of God's written law initially, but they kind of expanded on the law in a way that they thought was helping people to obey God. It's a little bit like if you, you go for a walk up to a cliff, and you come across a fence um, uh, that's kind of set back from the edge of the cliff. What's the fence there for? What's to, to prevent you from getting too close to the edge? And human traditions were, were man-made barriers, if you like, fences that kept you from accidentally breaking God's law. And so for the Pharisees, the heart of the problem is that Jesus' disciples, they were, they were overstepping these fences. They were well on their way to breaking God's law completely. Now, for Jesus, instead of kind of getting sucked into this pharisaical smear campaign, uh, he exposes the religiosity of them. He cuts straight to the actual heart of the problem by answering their question with another question. See it with me in verse 3. Jesus answered them, "'Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition?' For God said, "'Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death.'" In the Old Testament, the fifth commandment of honoring your parents was not merely a matter of sort of social relationships, as in it's a nice thing to do, but it was actually part of one's respect for God. It carried um, prosperous rewards as well as uh, weighty punishments. Uh, you, You may recall that this command was the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But it's also if, uh, the first command or A command that if you cursed your parents, you faced capital punishment. We read about that in Exodus 21. And so how God's people were to relate to their parents was another aspect of life that set them apart. In a culture with no pensions or superannuation, it rightly fell to the responsibility of children to look after their elderly parents. And I'd put to you today that that's still the case, for Christians at least. But listen to how Jesus exposes the deception of the Pharisees. Verse 5, But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you may, might have received from me as a gift committed to the temple, he does not have to honor his father. In this way you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Now, I don't know if you see what's going on here, but basically the Pharisees are doing a sneaky financial move uh, to, to, to work around the fact uh, that they need to provide and care for their parents. Uh, it's it's um, it, it, Sorry, if you just said that you were going to give money to God as an offering, then you kind of relieved yourself from having to provide and care for your parents, Uh, This would be like saying to your parents, um, sorry, Mum and Dad, uh, I I can't pay for that cancer treatment you need because I've actually earmarked those funds for Auckland EV's building fund. right?" (laughs) And so instead of caring for them, you actually abandon them and you use religion to do it. Then you pretend that that's somehow honoring God. That's kind of what's going on here for these Pharisees. And Jesus calls them out, doesn't he? These religious leaders, they were using their traditions to try and absolve themselves of god 's direct commands and now it 's easy for us to sort of sit here and judge the Pharisees, uh, but you know Christianity hasn 't always uh, been free of this similar issue. Well, what, one of the things um, that happened during the Reformation, or why the Reformation kind of came about 500 years ago, was that the, the Roman Catholic Church had actually introduced uh, a thing called indulgences. Now I don't know how much you, you know about your church history, uh, but this was a way in which people could actually pay money to, to pay off the sins of the punishment that they were going to earn, and so you, you would, you would, you would. Uh, come along and you'd be like, oh, I've committed these sins, but if I pay this money, then it, then it nullifies the, the sin that I've done. It would take away the punishment. And, and this would happen not just for yourself, but also for, for loved ones, maybe that had even um, passed away as well. But there's nothing in the Bible about this anywhere. This was just a, a tradition, a man-made tradition that was invented by the Roman Catholic Church, and it used it to serve their own greed. And that's why in the Reformation you see such a strong emphasis on the Bible alone being our authority rather than than allowing human tradition to kind of overrule it. And so the question for us tonight is are we allowing God's word to define what traditions we will or won't follow? Or is it the other way around? Are we allowing God's word to define what traditions we will or won't follow? Now Uh, It's not always just religious traditions. It it might be um, your cultural traditions as well. It might be your family traditions. You know, Um, one of the things uh, that first played out in Christianized marriage was um, the the activities that we were kind of invited to on Sunday mornings. Christy, my wife, comes from a non-Christian family, and so it was just kind of normative in their culture and their kind of family traditions to do stuff both Saturday and Sunday. And so we keep getting invited to these things that were on Sunday mornings, uh, and we kept having to kind of say, oh, sorry, we can't go because we've got kind of church and stuff. And that was an important priority for us. Now, it's not that um, we, we uh, were trying to be legalistic about always showing up to church, but actually a great desire to want to be with God's people and to come and together and to, to sit under his word being taught and preached. And so it was a little while into our marriage when they finally caught on to the fact that actually we, we shouldn't just keep inviting them to things on Sunday morning because it always comes up short. Sure, we need to actually think about, okay, let's, let's invite them to other times. And this kind of comes up in different areas of life as well, doesn't it? Our culture is pressing in on us, vying for our time, and, and even um, trying to slowly but surely kind of move what's, what's culturally normatively accepted. And so I think about uh, you know, the sports that are played on Sundays or the kind of, um, you know, if you want to do the swim the harbor bridge thing, you've got to do that on a Sunday morning early or whatever. Uh, the things that are happening, um, if you want to go for a weekend getaway or, or even sometimes your jobs, uh, they kind of encroach into our lives in, in a way that um, causes us to pause and think about whether or not they're actually uh, overruling the, the, the word of God. Are are the traditions or the kind of cultural traditions that are impressing upon us, uh, drawing us away from God's word? But you see, Jesus, he's not saying to the Pharisees, I disagree with you because I don't believe in tradition, but rather that, that traditions need their proper place. Traditions within Christianity need to uplift and clarify God's word. They can't nullify it as the Pharisees were doing. And so Jesus, he has some pretty stern words for these Pharisees. Verse 7, he calls them hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Oh, it's like cuts deep, doesn't it? See, once again, Jesus, he sucks the wind out of their sails by essentially saying, You blokes, you're no better than the people back in Isaiah's day. See, the the, the prophet Isaiah, he he spoke God's word to a generation who worshipped God in vain. And yet, as we see time and time again, God's word is timeless. And at this point in human history, Israel's religious leaders have let go of God's commands. They're holding on to the traditions of men. They're more concerned about their outward appearance and observance of the law than actually listening to God. And so they pay lip service to God. They they kind of take part in all these religious uh, ceremonies and feasts, but their hearts were far from God. It's all just hypocritical, outward religiosity. And then they would go around uh, proposing and imposing ways that everyone else had to kind of comply with them. But they never looked at their own hearts. They never looked at themselves. They never saw the real problem. They never saw that the problem wasn't with their outward appearance but it was a problem of their heart. And that's point two on your outline if you're following along. You see, the, the Pharisees' motives were to keep the law. And so their oral traditions, they developed in such a way as to ensure that they never crossed that line, right? They never stepped over that fence. But can you see that their focus is wrong? They're so focused on not doing the wrong, uh, yeah, not doing the wrong thing, yet forgetting to focus on the lawgiver himself. It's a bit like riding a bike. Hopefully you guys all ride a bike. Uh, I enjoy a little bit of cycling in my spare time. Uh, but you know when you're riding along on a bike, and if um, you get distracted or you take your eyes off the road, kind of end up looking off to the side, and all of a sudden you find yourself kind of hitting the curb or, or staring into a ditch, uh, you, you, your, your instinctive reaction is that your handlebars will follow wherever your eyes go. They follow your gaze. And so it is with these Pharisees. Their focus shifts uh, the, the shifts to, not, to, to what not to do rather than what they should be doing. And this is a matter of outward profession. Their hearts are not in it at all. See, deep down where it counts, the people gave no honor to their parents or to God. And their hearts, God says, are far away from him. And the emptiness of their worship is seen in what they teach others to do. It's this wrong focus that leads to a wrong outcome. Well, as the camera zooms back, we're reminded that the interaction that's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, is not just them. It's not happening just behind closed doors, but in front of a large crowd uh, that's, been, that's just been healed. And Jesus turns to them and explains the real problem of the heart. See it in verse 11. He says to them, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. You see, the Jews, they were all about cleanliness and cleansing rituals. The implication is that dirty hands would contaminate food, which would then make them unclean because they would ingest it, right? But Jesus is saying that defilement is not something that may be caught, that may be casually acquired by physical contact. And so, once again, as is common in the parable narratives, uh, Peter and the disciples get alongside Jesus, and Peter goes and asks Jesus to explain this a little further. In verse 17, Jesus answers and says, Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? You know, you know. To put this another way, uh, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile them. It's very simply uh, human biology: goes into your mouth, goes through a digestive process, absorbing all the nutrients, and then comes out as excrement. <laughs> That's it. Job done. And so Jesus can go ahead and kind of declare that all foods are clean because they cannot defile you. Their their previous purpose of setting. God's people apart is no longer necessary because the real realization is that food doesn't defile you. But do you know what does defile us? Do you know what does make us unclean before God? It's our hearts. See it with me, verse 18. What comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now, in biblical thinking, the heart is the center of our being. It's not just the emotional center, but the center of our thoughts, our actions, and our affections. It's the core of our being from which kind of everything else flows. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the Pharisees, they've they've missed the point. They're so concerned about external things like washings and dietary restrictions that they don't actually understand what sin is. Because sin is not primarily or first and foremost about our actions. Sin is primarily concerned about our hearts. Because it's from our hearts that come all sorts of sinful thoughts and behaviors, yeah? Verse 19, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are all wrong. They represent so much of the brokenness we see in the world around us but they stem from an evil and defiled heart. You know, so often we try to make a distinction between the kind of corrupt things we do and my own corruption. But we can't do that. Because Jesus is saying that the things that we do, the behaviors, the actions, the words, they're they're a true expression of who we are. It's the true you. And Jesus is helping us to see that our hearts are naturally out of alignment out of step with God. It's what's known uh, as original sin. Uh, David, King David, declares in Psalm fifty-one that, "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." Or, or, the prophet Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah seventeen: "The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it?" You see, if we misdiagnose the problem. Then we'll, just, then we'll just be about behavior correction. And it's so easy to get that wrong, isn't it? It's so easy just to look at the service, just to worry about what's going on externally. I think about us here at UniChurch and the things that, um, the, the kind of behaviors and things that we're wrestling with, and, and the way in which we try to uh, come in as a church community and we want to try and pretend that everything's fine. Or, or we see people's behavior and we try and correct their behavior. But here's the thing, friends, every single one of us here tonight has a secret sin issue that we're struggling with. Now, I don't want well, you to go up and just kind of like say, oh, the preacher said that you guys had a secret sin issue. Can you tell me what that is? Like, that's not the point. The point is, is that we're all dealing with sin in our lives, and we'll we're, 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 we're be pretending if we don't acknowledge that fact. And so often we can come into a church community or a faith community, and we can think that this is all about being squeaky clean, that we need to come and present our best selves on Sunday evening, and if I'm having a bad day or I'm not feeling up to it, then I'll just stay away from that community. But that's the very opposite of what God calls us to do. Jesus invites us to be a part of a community where we're a hospital for the broken, right? Right? This is a place where we're going to gather and invite others and welcome others, not because we're trying to look the part, but because we recognize our need for a Savior. You know, ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been unable to live up to God's righteous standard. All of us have been born outside of that garden. And so the entire Old Testament is kind of a catalog of human, humanity's efforts and failures to live that holy life. God's um, you know, ideal nation was Israel, but even Israel stuffed this up. Listen to how they're described in Ezekiel. Speaking, about, uh, speaking God's word, Ezekiel says this, that while the house of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it with their conduct and actions. God poured out his wrath on them because of the blood that they had shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. God judged them according to their conduct and actions because they profaned his holy name. And he had concern for his holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. You see, despite even the man-made traditions and the the sort of fences to prevent them from breaking the law, Israel were no better. Friends, our hearts are hellbound on disobeying God. They're filled with evil and rebellion, spilling over in all kinds of different ways. And when we turn from God, we don't stop worshipping. We can't. We're hardwired to worship. It's why Calvin says that our hearts are like idol factories. When people reject God, they don't just worship nothing. They, they worship anything. And so you pick anything. You pick career or study or sex or, or music, whatever it is. People will start worshipping that instead. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. It's our hearts that are unclean. And this was a problem, this was a known problem throughout the Old Testament, right? But it was also known that there was a solution that had to come from God. Because humanity needed heart surgery. We needed a, a heart transplant. And so point three, the solution of the heart You see, God had been promising a solution to this heart problem for a while. And just like Jesus, Ezekiel turns the attention to their hearts, not just their actions. And so in Ezekiel 36, we read these words on the screen. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances." You see, God promised through Ezekiel that the heart problem would be dealt with. That God's people would be given a new heart and God's own spirit. That that heart of stone, it's a picture of death, it's lifeless, but it's going to be replaced with a heart of flesh. A picture of new life. But notice who's doing all of this, right? This isn't the people who are doing this. God says, I will sprinkle, I will cleanse, I will give, I will remove, I will place, I will cause you to follow. Friends, this problem of our hearts is not something that we ourselves have the capacity to fix. Israel was hopeless to fix that issue and so are you and I. And so God promised that he would step in and solve the problem of our hearts himself. It's a a solution that finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. The one who alone is the true Adam who never disobeyed God. He alone lived the life that we couldn't And he alone is therefore the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the one who is our substitute and can pay the price for our sin problem. Because it's his death. His death was the death that we deserved for our evil and rebellious hearts. But because of God's faithful mercy, we don't get what we deserve, do we? Instead, we get Jesus' perfect slate. His track record becomes ours. His righteousness restores a people for God for his own possession. And now we belong to him because we're found in Christ. And so as we hear Jesus promise his disciples that after he departs and returns to heaven that he's going to send his Holy Spirit, the very spirit that Ezekiel speaks about. This is the, the spirit in the day of Pentecost that we read of in Acts 2 that shows us That's what's happening. God did this, not you, not me. When we were still enslaved by our own evil hearts, Jesus did the work that only God could do in providing all that we need to be made right and to be brought back into right relationship with God. This theme is picked up in Hebrews 8 when he says this way, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Today's parable raises an issue of cleanliness. How do we become clean before a holy God? And the answer that Christianity provides is that you can't. On your own, you cannot be made right with God. But in Jesus, you are declared a child of God. For those of us who recognize this heart issue, those who admit their sin to God and trust in Jesus alone for our salvation, this is an act of repentance and faith. Of saying sorry and trusting Jesus' finished work on the cross. And so let me ask you tonight, have you done that? Where do you stand with Jesus? Do you trust Him and Him alone for your salvation? But perhaps you're here tonight and you've been a Christian for a while. You've been trusting in Jesus and you understand the salvation that's on offer at the cross. But I want to ask you, what's your relationship with sin? Because if if it's true that God gives us new hearts, then it follows, right, that, that there should be some positive effect on our lives. And so point four, the effects of the new heart is part of God's promise, why is it that we still struggle with sins if we're Christians? That doesn't mean that we're no longer saved. I think that sometimes as Christians we can trip ourselves up thinking that Jesus only died for past sins. And and now that he's kind of got us back on the right track, we'll take it from here, thanks Jesus. We got this. But that's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. Jesus' death on the cross paid for all of our sins, both past, present, and future sins. And so we need to hear this clearly tonight, that God's love for you and your peace with him has never and can never be based on what you have done. It's based solely on what Jesus has done for us. And so how then, as Christians, should we relate to our sin? Well, let me try and say three things about our relationship to sin as spirit-filled Christians. First is that the Spirit recognizes our sin. Second, that the Spirit removes sin's power. And third, the Spirit replaces our affections. So, so firstly, the, the Spirit helps us recognize that we still have sin to deal with. This is not a, a quick process. We've, we've been given new hearts, sure, but our flesh is weak. And we're still waiting for Jesus' return when we'll see the fullness of the new life he's promised. When Jesus will return and we'll be glorified with him. But until that time, we live in this broken world where we will continue to fight sin. Uh, John, uh, 1 John 1 says it this way, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But this isn't hopeless because the very next verse says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, friends, when Jesus went to the cross, he knew what he was doing. And so for the sake of sinful people, he knew that they would continue to sin even after believing in him. I need to tell you tonight that your sin is no surprise to God, and yet his mercy is more. He faithfully promises to forgive. And so the realization that even as Christians, sin will persist but God's forgiveness will persist even more. We will still sin, but God will still forgive. Because this side of heaven, we will never be sinless. But with God's Spirit in our lives, convicting us of sin and helping to put that to death, we will be people who sin less. How good is that? And that's all because of the Holy Spirit who renders sin powerless. It removes sin's power over us. And that's the second thing to say. Because the the Spirit-empowered Christian who's received this new heart, our relationship isn't defeatist. It's not pessimistic anymore. Remember the promise in Ezekiel. I put it back on the slides, on the screen, sorry. Verse 27, I will place my Spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Friends, that work has already begun the moment you became a Christian. Because we haven't just been saved from the punishment of sin, we've also been saved from the power of sin over our lives. Because if we're in Jesus, we're no longer slaves to sin. Jesus has freed us so that we can live to honor him. And because the Spirit removes our affections for sin... It replaces our affections for a genuine desire after the things of God. This is the the deep heart work that God is doing in us by His Spirit. He's growing our recognition of sin and replacing it with a love for God. And that's the third thing to say, that, that the Spirit replaces our affections. See, with a new heart comes new desires, new affections. And so it's not simply enough just to recognize the sin in our lives, And kind of cheapen grace by going around continuing to sin and sin and sin and thinking, God will forgive, God will forgive. It's not enough to just kind of understand that sin no longer has any power over us. And so uh, we kind of go around thinking, oh yeah, um, I I could quit that tomorrow if I had to, I I could stop that. No, no, we actually need to replace that old desire with a new desire. We need new affections that are after God's own heart to see sin for what it truly is, and to desire to live God's way instead. In the 19th century, a Scottish pastor by the name of Thomas Chalmers put it this way. It's on the screen. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God, and no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. You see, the people of God are to be a supernatural people. (laughs) They would be uh, people who are indwelt by God's spirit. They would have the law written on their hearts and they would know him and have the ability to know more and more of him. Is that you, friend? (laughs) Because your ability to know more of God is only limited by your desire to seek him. And so we, we ought to be a people filled with the Spirit of God to live out these truths. And so how's that working out for you? What does that reality look like? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Because in one sense, God's preparing us for our future with Him in heaven, isn't He? And we can have this confidence in the fact that God has promised to work in us, transforming us to be more and more like Jesus, We have a saying around here at EV that uh, your best years as a Christian are always ahead of you. That because of God's transforming work in your life, He's working out and changing you from one degree of glory to another. And so it should be the case that as you come back year after year and you reflect on how God has worked in your life, that you would be seeing progress, not because of anything that you've done, but because of the Spirit's work in you. Because the Spirit helps us recognize our sin. The Spirit removes sin's power, and the Spirit replaces our affections. And so we need to look to Jesus. We need to stop thinking that our sin is stronger than Jesus. We actually need to repent. (laughs) Jesus, he's come to heal the sick, not just physically, but spiritually. And he gives us new hearts. And so tonight we want to recognize that we don't want to fall into the trap of the Pharisees thinking that you have to do it within yourself to please God. Uh, That's a crushing and soul-destroying place to be. And if that's you today, what you need is to look to the cross again and remember that your hope is in a perfect Savior. Savior. Like the patient, uh, the heart transplant patient who refuses a new heart because their state of their old heart is so bad, it's got nothing to do with how bad our heart is but how good the substitute is. And so look to Jesus, friend. Take your sins seriously. Confess it to God. Confess it to one another, as James tells us. And trust that God's word is powerful and keep coming back to God's word. Be encouraged that God's grace is growing you to be more and more like Jesus. And as he does that, we can have the confidence to know that he is at work in us by his spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, we uh, give you great thanks for your word, and we thank you that it is so, so sharp, that it cuts sharper than a two edged sword. And tonight, we recognize uh, the problem of our hearts, and we thank you for the, the work that Jesus has done in our lives. We thank you that you would send him to save sinners like us, and that your spirit dwells in us. And so, we ask that you would help us to, to recognize the sin that still remains. Help us to remember that you have removed sin's power over us. And would you continue to replace our affections for affections after your own heart? Would you help us to desire the things that you desire? And would you help us to live a life that brings you glory? That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, We'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.